Storehouse Dallas. I am so excited about tonight. Say Song of Solomon. How many of you have uh, been through a teaching on Song of Solomon? Raise your hand. Okay. I love this book. Um, when I first met or was first introduced to the International House of Prayer, I was introduced through uh, Mike Bickle's teaching on Song of Solomon. Then, and, and I love Mike. He was very detailed. I'm not really a detailed kind of girl. But uh, there's this man named Gary Weens. And I went to, um, believe it or not, an all-Asian conference in California where nobody spoke any English. I was the only person in the room besides for Gary that spoke English. And I was thinking to myself, I have no idea why I'm here. The Lord told me to come. And this man taught on the Song of Solomon unlike anybody that I had ever known in my life. And I mean, the, the, the power of God hit me so powerfully that I just began to weep and shake and weep and shake that, that there is a man who is the lover of my soul, and he wants to marry me. And, and, and just the, the, that courtship and the drawing in and, and how intentional he is about pursuing us and growing us up in love. And not just growing us up in love, but growing us up in love through love. And so he uses love to mature us and he uses love to get us to the place that we long for. We long for, it's, a, it's so weird because we, we have a tendency to focus on destiny, promises, the purpose of God, right? Those are the things that we major on. And that's the thing that we are like, this is where I want my prayer life to go. But the truth is, is that our promise is a man. Our promise is a, is a, is, is a, is a, I mean, a bride, that someone that is engaged and betrothed doesn't think about all of the gifts that she's going to get. I mean, it's a bonus. Don't, let's not lie about that. It's a bonus, definitely. You come home, UPS is there. Oh, good. So it, it's awesome. But what does she long for? She longs for the man that's at the end of that aisle, standing before the altar, has prepared for her to come to be with him. And that's what she set her gaze on. That's what she set her hope on. That's what, you know, she's thinking about while she's exercising and dieting and, you know, or as Esther does, you know, the oils. But, you know, today it's like high-intensity training. Um, so I want to talk about this because it's near and dear in my heart. And it just so happens Rob and Lindsay have been um, covering it so beautifully, by the way. And so they've taken you through. Yeah, go ahead and give them a hand. And I hope it's okay that we kind of split it up because we all kind of have our favorites. And I hope it doesn't break the flow for you. But, but the, the summation of it is, is, as they've talked about, chapters 1 through chapters 4, is that this is your story. This is your story. You're the bride. I'm a son of God, and Rob is a bride of Christ. So it is a genderless scenario. It just basically means that we're all going to get to get married. We're all going to meet him in the sky. But there's a, there's a story here that is your story. And every single person doesn't get exempt from this story. And I can see my life in the pages of this book over and over and over. And it's so incredibly beautiful. It is such, it is poetry. He puts it in, in, in language that is romance because it draws us in. And it's not just a story about a man and a woman. It's a story about a king and a peasant. It's a story about you and, and, and your bridegroom, your King Jesus. And the price that he paid to not only get you, to not only have you, but the price that he paid in order to bring you in to his home. 
It cost him everything. And so chapter 5 is my favorite, which is kind of weird because it's the dark night of the soul. But here's the beauty of the dark night of the soul. There is a beauty in the dark night of the soul. Because every person in this room has experienced the dark night of the soul. You've all been there. And when the Lord is so good to give language and understanding to something like this that we go through and it tears at our heart, it tears at our soul, it helps us to endure. And it also helps us to succeed in the walk as we go through it. So let's go ahead and begin. And I want to go ahead and start. I'm going to start with um, in chapter 4 where uh, Lindsay ended up last week. Chapter 4, verse 16. So here's the scenario. Um, you have had the, um, the Shulamite. Now the Shulamite is the peasant girl who began, who began to hear the Lord's voice in chapter 1. Okay, so this is basically chapter 1 is your salvation. You're getting saved. And when you're getting saved, here's the truth. You've got on a lot of masks. You've hidden away. You've hidden yourself away. You don't trust people. You don't believe people. You don't even really know how to receive love because you got the mask on. When you're wearing a mask, can't receive love. And so what the Lord begins to do in chapter 1 is he begins to, the king begins to speak to the peasant girl and whisper truths about who she is. And so those beginning years when you are just saved are like the honeymoon years. You're just like, remember when you were first dating your wife or your husband? And you were like, oh, I think about him all the time. And he says these words to me, and it just causes my heart to come alive. And I'm like, could it be possible? And then when you're not with them, you're wondering what they're thinking about you. And then you go through, if you're a woman, you go through and you think about every word that the man said, and what did he really mean? And you talk to all of your girlfriends about it. What do you think he meant when he said X, Y, and Z? And they're like, probably X, Y, and Z. And you're like, no, no, I think there's a deeper meaning behind it. <laughs> but the truth is, is that you, you meditate on the words of, the, of this man that is pursuing you. Because you're, you're wanting, your heart is beginning to engage with those words. And you're beginning to get transformed. John and I have the privilege of, of pastoring so many um, um, pre-marriage, pre-marriages. And, and it's interesting because everybody has a story. Everybody has a story of how they were pursued. The woman, how, this is how I was pursued. The man, this is how I pursued. And let, guys, let me tell you something. As an aside, you need to learn the art of pursuing women. And it's not through texting. Put down the phone. Well, call her, pick her up, take her on a date. Look her in the eye and say, I just want to know you. <laughs> well, no. Okay, whatever. You know what I mean. But really, we hear these stories of, of romance, and it's almost like Song of Solomon. It's, it sounds like this. It should sound like this. God, the, we women need to be pursued by a man the way Christ pursues his bride. Women need to be unlocked and awakened, and that does not stop once you get married. There are still layers to our hearts that you get to discover. Amen? All right, so here we are. We move forward. So she gets awakened, chapter 1, chapter 2. The, uh, you've got a little bit of a, she's still real insecure, and the Lord is calling her away. He goes up the mountain of Myrrh, and he's like, hey, I want you to follow me up here. But she's a little timid, and she doesn't really understand. She doesn't trust the voice, but more than not trusting his voice, she actually doesn't trust his leadership yet. You know, when you are dating your husband or when you are making friends with people, that when they come into your life, you're like, 
I don't really know you that well. And when you begin to say things, I'm not sure how much I can believe because my history with you isn't very deep. I want to believe you, but I'm not sure I can fully trust you. And so she actually, I wouldn't say she failed in the first dark night of the soul, but what she did is um, it wasn't complete disobedience, but it just, she didn't know how to trust him. And so it was basically her and her immaturity. She didn't really know how to follow his voice. And so he said, come up the mountain. She went into the city um, and he actually met her there because he's good. And he knows his leadership is perfect, and he knows how to grow us up. And another thing that I love that Mike Bickle has said over the years, God does not despise us in our immaturity. That would be like me saying to my grandchild, why don't you grow up? You know, no, I meet them where they are. Even when they fail, I meet them where they are going, I'm so proud of you for trying. Let's, let's try this again. I want you to get to know me a little bit more. And so that's what happens in chapters 3 and chapter 4. She begins to grow in maturity. She begins to grow in love. And he continues to speak over her. He be- continues to show himself strong on her behalf. And so she's beginning to say, wait a minute. I can trust this love. I can trust this love. I can trust this love so much that I believe that I can actually go there with you to the deep parts of your heart. And so what happens is her heart begins to stir, saying, I actually want more. I want more. And so the Lord is watching as she's growing, as as he does with you. He's watching how you're growing. And as you grow, what happens is you're going to begin to say something. You're going to begin to invite the Lord into the garden of your heart because you're going to start to say, I'm not satisfied. I'm hungry. Your love has captivated my heart. I need to be captivated even more. And so she actually says this prayer, which I have prayed before, not knowing what I was praying. But she prays the Shulamite in in chapter 4, verse 16. Um, And he, right before that, he's talking about her garden. So he is actually, uh, let's let's go back to 15. I'm not going to read it. But in, in verse 15, he begins to say to her, look at your heart. Look at the condition of the garden of your heart. I can smell the fruitfulness that is coming out of your heart. Which means, he's saying, there is fruit of the Spirit coming forth out of you. There is patience and love and kindness and long-suffering. And this is make it's intoxicating me. As I smell the aroma of the choices that you're making in your life, even though I know it's hard. So he's saying these things to her. And so he, so she responds to him in verse 16. And she says, awake, O north wind, and come, O south. Blow on my garden that its spices may flow out. Let my beloved come to his garden and eat its pleasant fruits. And so she is saying to, to, to the Lord, she's saying, I, I want to have this one-on-one with you. I know I've been in the field, laboring in the field and loving your people, but I need more. And beloved, let me tell you something. This is exactly where the body of Christ is right now. The body of Christ is doing something very unique right now. We are at the end of chapter 5. We're coming out of a dark night of the soul because we begin to say, come. Come, we have to have more. We have to return to our first love. We have to have more. I'm not satisfied anymore with working. I'm I'm returning back to that place of wholehearted devotion to you. Come, Lord Jesus, come. And so he responds and he said, I have come to my garden, my sister, my spouse. I have gathered my myrrh with my spice. I have eaten my honeycomb with my honey. I have drunk my wine with my milk. Eat, oh friends, drink. Yes, drink deeply, oh beloved ones. So he begins to call everybody else in. 
to begin to eat of your garden. Because when you begin to allow the Lord to make you fruitful, to have a fruitful heart, what the Lord does, it's like an explosion of favor. And all of a sudden, people are drawn to you because there is a fragrance that's on you that's so appealing. They're like, wait, there's so much fruit in your life. There's so much of an anointing on your words and the way, the things that you say, the things that you speak, the wisdom that you're sharing with me. I have to eat of this fruit in your garden. And so it's not just her trying to make her own way. She's no longer immature, but she is, she is maturing and has matured to a point where she actually begins to say, I want the north and the south wind to come and blow on my garden. Now let me tell you something. When you ask the north and the south wind to blow on your garden, basically what that means is that you're about to go through a pruning season. That the fruit and the things of your garden are about to hit both the cold air and the warm air. And so you've got, a, you've got like the perfect storm that you are actually inviting into your life. So let's read in chapter, in, uh, chapter 5, verse 2. And we'll pick up here. This is where your notes pick up. The Shulamite says, I sleep, but my heart is awake. It is the voice of my beloved. He knocks, saying, open for me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. For my head is covered with dew, my locks with the drops of the night. I have taken off my robe. How can I put it on again? I have washed my feet. How can I defile them? My beloved put his hand by the latch of the door, and my heart yearned for him. I arose to open for my beloved. And my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with liquid myrrh. On the handles of the locks I opened for my beloved. But my beloved had turned away and was gone. My heart leapt up as he spoke, when he spoke. I sought him, but I could not find him. I called him, but he gave no answer. The watchmen who went about the city found me. They struck me, they wounded me. The keepers of the walls took my veil away. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved. That you tell him I am lovesick. The daughters of Jerusalem said, What is your beloved more than any other, more than another beloved? O fairest among women, what is your beloved more than another beloved that you so charge us? Okay, let's stop there. <clears throat> so here she is in a crucial stage in her journey uh, to intimacy and authority. And I want to tell you a dream that, um, that a young woman had years ago. She got, um, she had a dream that she had just gotten saved and she was dancing in a room with Jesus and they're dancing and they're dancing and they're dancing. And all of a sudden she notices that there is a doorway, a small doorway in the wall. And she said, Jesus, what is that? And he said, that's the door to my suffering. And she said, can I go through it? And he said, no, you're not small enough yet. And so there came a time where that doorway opened up and she went into the room of suffering and she's in the room of suffering with Jesus. And she's in there and she's dancing and she's dancing and she's dancing with him. And a doorway appears at the, in the floor and it's this very small door. And she said, Jesus, what is that? And he said, that's the doorway to my authority. And she said, can I go through? And he said, no, you're not small enough yet. And so the time came where she had spent time with him in the place of his suffering, where she had become small and her spirit man had become large. And she walked through that door. And once she got through that door, she knew that she could walk in both intimacy and authority without falling. The thing is, is that Jesus is looking for an army of believers who can carry his glory and bring glory to his name. That we will not falter, we will not fall, but we will honor him in every way. And we will bring glory to him and everything that he's done. 
And so he's looking for a company of people that will continue to say yes to him, who will invite him to come in to grow them up. And like you've heard me say before, you know, people talk about a prayer movement and a worship movement and this movement and that movement, but God is really after a maturity movement. He's after people who are going to grow up and stop being nursed and stop being babies. And he's like, all right, it's time for you to invite me and let's do this so that you can walk in authority and begin to speak to mountains and cause them to fall into the sea. Amen. And so the Shulamite has now come to the crucial stage in her journey to intimacy and authority. This chapter 5, man, every single one of you have probably been there. Some of you maybe multiple times. And so the question is, will she embrace the dark night of suffering with an unoffended heart? And see, that's the beauty of this. Because what happens is that when the dark night of the soul comes, it's not a distant offense. You see, the Lord knows what it's going to take to uncap those things in your heart. And what will happen is that he will allow the most violent offense to hit your heart. Because you will have to choose love when in fact you want to choose hate. Because hate is going to be the only option because everything about the situation will tell you that that's the emotion that you should feel. And so you actually have to force yourself and all of your members, your heart, your mind, your emotions, everything about you, you almost have to physically pull yourself together to say, I will not be offended. I will not be offended. Jesus even said, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. And the people that have been sent to you to try to destroy you, the Lord, you, the Lord is looking for that response in you as well. So uh, the, the Shulamite is basically, in, in verse 2, invited into this. She's, in, she's actually saying, um, open, I want, I want to do this. I want to go there. And she says this, I sleep, but my heart is awake. It is the voice of my beloved. He knocks, saying, open for me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. For my head is covered with dew and my locks with the drops of night. So I briefly want to go through this because what's happening is that she's saying, I'm asleep, but I'm awake. How many of you have been there? So she's saying this. She's saying, I'm in rest. I'm in rest. I have come to a place of rest, but yet my heart is awake. My heart is longing. There's a hunger happening to my heart. So there's this thing happening where she's not worried. She's not concerned. She's not in fear. She's actually fully in confidence. And so she's resting in the Lord, but yet something begins to happen where her heart begins to, to long. Her heart begins to speak to the Lord, and it is fully awake. So she's in spiritual rest and awakened love. A.W. Tozer calls this the paradox of love. So she hears the voice of the bridegroom inviting her into yet another encounter. She knows his voice. She's developed that place of hearing. And it's interesting because here's what happens. Dark night of the soul isn't like I'm going to invite you into a dark night of the soul. He doesn't go, oh, hey, let me just show you how this is going to go down. It actually is like wooing you into the wilderness. It usually happens with a promise. Where there will be a prophetic word of this promise and all of the prophecies will line up that say, oh, look at this. This is going to be amazing. The glory of the Lord, the promises of God, the destiny. I'm on my way. And then all of a sudden it's like, bam. I'm like Joseph. I'm in a pit. What happened? Wait, what? Ah, ah. This is not the way I saw this going. I really believed, and you know, the thing is, is that it's funny, but it's not really funny. Because at the time, it's like mostly relational. It's mostly relational where you're like, what? What? I, they're supposed to love me. I'm supposed to be popular and good looking. 
that's where I'm going, you know? I mean, the dreams, my heart, everything, the destiny. Oh, how it, can it be that they hate me? That I'm hurting this bad, that all this bad stuff happened to me. But his words of affirmation actually empower her decision to follow him. Jesus will never call you into a step of obedience and then neglect to give you the power to obey. Let me say that again. When he says, come, he actually, when those words leave his mouth to your ears, it has grace attached to it that enable you to follow him into the wilderness. And all of the sudden, you're going with hope, but yet you know at the same time it's going to be hard. But you're like, okay, he said come, and I know I can trust him. I know that he's not going to leave me. He's not going to forsake me. And you kind of like memorize all those scriptures, you know. It's like, okay, he's going to finish what he started. Da, 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 da. I mean, you just say, there they go. They're going through your mind. They're going through your mind, right? All right. Hang with me. When his voice comes, the power is made available, and the only issue that remains is our willingness to respond. So this is what he calls her. He says, you're my sister. You're my love. You're my dove. You're my perfect one. So he actually begins to declare these things over her. Well, first of all, let me tell you something. She had already failed in the dark night of the soul before, so she wasn't the perfect one. But he knew what she was about to become. And so he's prophesying over her going, you can do it. You're perfect. You're the best athlete out there. You're going to do the javelin. You're going to do, you know, I mean, I don't really know that much about sports, but you know what I mean, kind of. So, so like a coach, he is like, you can do this. Go, go. You're my dove. You're my fair one. I love you. And it's so incredibly perfect. It's so incredibly personal. And this is the God of the universe, by the way, who created all the stars which I think is really cool because she, like, whispers. Jesus invites the bride to share in the dark night of his suffering. Jesus now reminds the bride of the depths in which he went because of love. He comes to her in the middle of the night with the dew on his head and the locks wet with the drops of the night. This is a picture of Jesus in Gethsemane. So when he shows up, when he begins to draw her away, Here's the thing about the dark night of the soul. And after having gone through several myself, I've been through chapter 5 several times. And one of the things that sustains me is that he shows up with a crown of thorns. He shows up like this with the sweat dripping down his face. And I know that what's happening is I'm actually partnering in the sufferings of Christ. And in that place and with that reality, I call it a privilege. I mean, I'm like, I want to go where you go. I want to do what you do. You know, um, Jesus even said, can you even drink the cup of my suffering? Can you do this? And the thing is, is that you're going to be the bride of a bridegroom that gave it all, he is going to require everything. 80% is not going to get you there. 80% is what the Shulamite did in chapter 2. But now you're in chapter 5, and he's like, I'm looking for the 100%. I'm looking for you to understand what happened to me at the cross. I'm looking for you to understand what it was like to be betrayed by the one that was supposed to love you the most. To lose everything. To feel like you weren't going to be able to survive. To be betrayed not just um, by a Judas kiss and the one that was supposed to be protecting you and loving you and loyal to you, but... He was also betrayed by the one that he came to save, the leadership of the Jewish nation, the high priests. So let's move on. 
So in this place of the dark now, uh, night of the soul, it is essential to see that there is now no compromise in her. The difficulty she will face now is not a result of compromise, but a result of full obedience. So she's doing it, and she is fully obedient. And here's the thing about the dark night of the soul. And here's what happened to her. Let's go ahead and read this. Song of Solomon 3 through 5. I have taken off my robe. How can I put it on again? I have washed my feet. How can I defile them? My beloved put his hand by the latch of the door, and my heart, it yearned for him. I arose to open for my beloved, and my hands drip with myrrh, my fingers with liquid myrrh on my handles, uh, on the handles of the lock. So the bride makes the decision not to be shaken by fear. As she hears the bridegroom's words, she's aware of the moment of costly obedience that is upon her. She recalls that the last time she was summoned to obedience, she was dressed in the clothing of compromise. But now she says this. She declares that she has removed these robes of, of compromise. She is fully, 100% committed to seeing this through all the way. And here's the thing. John always says this. John, I love him the way he's taught our children. He said, you cannot wait for the moment of trial to decide who you're going to be. You have to decide who you're going to be before you ever get there. You're either an honest person or you're not an honest person. But you can't decide in a time of trial whether you're going to be honest or not. When the pressure is on, you have to have already decided. And in this dark night of the soul, this Shulamite, she already decided that she was going all the way. And that there would be no compromise in her. And that no matter what, she was not going to waste this pain. She was not going to waste the heartache, but let it have the full measure that it was going to have in her heart to produce the authority that she so longed for to, to, to walk in. Does that make sense? All right, the Shulamite's heart is quickened with yearning as the king touches the latch of the door of her heart. His hand is scarred with the testimony of his faithful love, and she is stricken with longing as she remembers the price that he paid for her. So you're in this time, and I don't know about you, but when I suffer, and this is a really good rule of thumb for all of us, when you suffer, don't look around the world for comparison. You know how misery loves company? That is not going to do you any good. Honestly, it's just not to go around and, and, and look for other people to try to see if, well, maybe I can find something similar in what they went through. I'm telling you, I look to the word of God because there are so many people here in the word of God that have gone through the same things, especially Jesus. And I look to, to his life and I think to myself and I begin to picture that moment where he, he's in the garden and he knows what he's about to go through. But he even said, not my will, but your will be done. And some of us just need to declare that as we're in the dark night of the soul and we have no understanding. Because what happens, what you'll see is that he actually pulls back and he draws away from her. And so she doesn't, she knows she's about to go into something where it's not going to make any sense. She arises to open the door and to say yes to the call, to this kind of discipline, this kind of discipleship. So she's, uh, as a tree, she's about to get herself pruned. And so all of these places of fruitfulness and everybody, and here's the thing, this doesn't go unseen. This does not go unseen. Everybody will see this. Everybody is going to see what's happening to you, which you'll see later on when you've got the, the, um, the watchmen. And how they are perceiving her weakness. They are perceiving the things that happen. That, because when bad things start to happen, guess what happens? People will look at you and say, what's wrong with you? 
Why can't you get it together? Why aren't you more successful? Why are you always having problems? Why blah, blah, blah. So, so not only do you have the heartache of the situation that you're in, but then you have other people that are judging what's happening to you in your life. And so there's a reproach that goes on with all of, of, the, of what's happening to you in the dark night of the soul. Am I right? Okay, I'm, I promise we're going to get on the other side of this. So as she, uh, as she does so, her hands begin to drip with myrrh. Myrrh is a death. It's, it's, it's a death. That's the death spice, the burial spice. Her fingers with liquid myrrh as she touches the door to open it. This is a picture of an anointing that comes on the moment of obedience. The grace of the Holy Spirit to follow Jesus 100% with abandonment to his will. All right, so the test of withdrawal. What happens is that once she realizes that she's in this, there's no turning back. How many of you, you know how you get in a situation or, or you're like you're in the dark night of the soul and you're looking for the exit, right? You're like, how can I get myself out of this? Like you know you can't go back because you know you've come too far with Christ. You're too far down the road and you can't go back, but you you can't really go forward because you're like, "Oh man, this is this is really going to hurt. It's going to be so painful, but if I could go back, I would." You know, and so you're just looking for anything to comfort your heart. Song of Solomon, uh, chapter 5, verses 6 and 7. I opened for my beloved, but my beloved had turned away and was gone. My heart leapt up when he spoke. I sought him, but could not find him. I called him, but he gave no answer. The watchmen who went about the city found me. They struck me. They wounded me. And the keepers of the walls took my veils away from me. So this section of the story is so important of our understanding of the ways of God. And here's the thing. See, God is not like us. Here's what I've discovered in my walk, okay? God created Matthew. He created man. He created woman. And he knows exactly how you're made. And he knows exactly what to do in order to draw you, to draw you to himself. And so what he did is the most incredible thing, is he calls her away into the dark night of the soul. When you respond to this, he backs away. This is such a paradox of what we feel like the goodness of God should look like. But in his wisdom and in his kindness, he understands that removing himself and you being alone in silence without the privilege of hearing his voice in that hour is going to test you in what you truly believe about God. Do you really believe he's good? Are you going to continue to search him out in this place? Or are you going to throw a pity party? Are you going to complain? I'm telling you, <clears throat> in that place where we're wrestling it out, it is so, it's the hardest thing that any of us will ever do. Because at the time, it's almost like we lose sight of what's on the other side of this place. And the only thing that we have at this moment is our history in God. Okay. I opened for my beloved, but my beloved had turned away. The Shulamite opened the door of her heart with eager anticipation of this intimate communion with the king, only to find that he had withdrawn his presence from her. So this is, pretty, this is pretty tough. My heart leapt up when he spoke. The phrase carries a double meaning that emphasizes the shock of the king's withdrawal. There is a sense of eager anticipation at seeing the beloved. But then comes the deflation, the sinking feeling at the realization that he is gone. Okay, so here you are. This is what you're doing. You're like, okay, 
I know that right now everything in my life is falling apart. I just lost all my money. I just lost all my accounts. I just lost my best friend, just betrayed me. My husband was just found with another woman, blah, 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 blah. You know, in our case, you know, our daughter was in a, is a quadriplegic. You know, our son gets thrown into prison. I mean, we have had gone through it. You know, I was betrayed by this person and this person. I mean, I've got a list, okay? And so you're like, what's my, what's my response going to be? Because the minute you're in that scenario, you so desperately need to hear from God. Because, to, to, because our human condition is, I just need to understand it so I can fix it. If I can understand it, then I can do something about the pain that I'm in so that I can help God, I can help facilitate this, and I can help God do his job better. <clears throat> right? But he, he, he backs away. And so you're left in poop. You're just like, this just, nothing about this is right. And where are you, God? It is essential to remember that in this moment, the dark night is bathed in obedience and orchestrated by the Holy Spirit. For one reason, he's looking for your qualification as his bride. He's looking for an equal helpmate. He's looking for someone who is a helpmate that is equal to him. He went through his dark night of the soul at Gethsemane when he knew he was going to be beaten, when he knew that, his, that all of the skin was going to be taken off of his back, when he knew he would be carrying the cross, when he knew he would be hung on the cross, when he knew that he would be stabbed in the side, when he knew that the people that were supposed to be there for him and love him and cover him and protect him had betrayed him. And he's looking for a suitable helper for himself. So the withdrawal seems strange to us until we comprehend the ways of God. Page 7. I sought him but could not find him. I called to him, but he gave me no answer. The bride fervently looks for the Lord, but she cannot find him. Her pain becomes more and more evident as she continues to seek him and call to him with no effect. So here's what happens to you. You all of a sudden become a mighty prayer warrior. All of a sudden, what are you doing? You're fasting, man. You're praying. You're feasting in the last season, but you're just like, you are on your face before the Lord. You are crying out with all of your heart, all of your strength, and you're seeking the comforter. You're seeking the teacher. You are seeking the helper. And you are saying, I have to have you because here's what happens in the dark night of the soul. Are you ready? Drum roll. Dark night of the soul, there is no plan B. And you realize that as in you're in the midst of it. And you, and, and you also make the decision, I don't want a plan B. Because plan A is the only plan that I am going for. Because I'm wholehearted. I'm completely obedient to this. I will not leave this place until you decide. And you will come to the place where you realize that the enemy did not get you there, but it was God. And when you realize that, you'll also realize that, that you're going to stay in that place until God decides that you're done. During the dark night of the soul, the Holy Spirit exposes strongholds of the enemy that remain in our souls. And I can tell you something. The thing about things that are trapped in your souls, let me tell you something. When I started this out and I was in chapter one, chapter two in my own life. Storehouse Dallas. I thought I was pretty cool. I mean, I thought I pretty much had it all together. I used to build businesses. Woo, you know, God, you know, here I am. I'm going to do these great things for God. Of course, I'm going to do these great things for God. But let me tell you what was in my soul. What was in my heart? Jealousy, pride, envy, fear, poverty. Man, I could go on and on and on and on and on. But I didn't know it was there until I got in the dark night of the soul. And then I was like, oh, that's what you're after. 
And so these things begin to get ejected in the place of total surrender when you finally say, there is no plan B for me. I'm not going back. I'm only going forward. And you're the only answer that I have. You're the only one who can help me. This is going to be a heaven-sent miracle, wisdom from heaven, because nobody else can heal my heart. Okay, verse 7. So the Shulamite, what happens is that she goes into the city and begins to ask all of the leadership, hey, can you help me? I need to find my beloved. And what happens is they actually begin to strike her. I'm telling you, if you've never been betrayed by the ones that you have been led by, the ones that you trust the most, a Judas kiss, it is truly the most horrible experience. But it gives you a glimpse into what Jesus felt when Judas came up to him. And he said, Judas, are you betraying me with a kiss? I mean, he says that, and there's no emotion tied to it. But if you really think about what his heart must have been feeling at that moment, I knew you, Judas, from the beginning of time. I formed you in your mother's womb. I've carried you in my heart for three years. We've eaten together. We've laughed together. We've traveled together. We've ministered together. We've prayed together. I love you. Why are you doing this? I'm supposed to trust you. You're supposed to be for me. You know, and these are the emotions that we go through when we get betrayed like this, when we get hurt like this. But here's what happens when you are betrayed by those who are supposed to so love you and lead you and help you and keep you safe, is that it actually tore the Shulamite's veil. You see, all along, what she wanted is to see him face to face. All along, she wanted the mask to come off. She wanted that identity of who she was pretending to be to fully be removed. She didn't want to have to pretend to be somebody in order to be loved. Loved by man, loved by your children, loved by your parents, loved by your friends, loved by whoever, it's so that you can get to your destiny. It's like, no, the veil got torn just as it did with Jesus. When Jesus died on the cross, his veil was torn. And the whole world could see that he was Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah that had come. And when you are betrayed like this, I'm telling you, you should be dancing in the streets because your veil is being removed so that the fullness of who you are can come forth. As John said to me recently, he turned to me the other day and he said, baby, are you fully you? which is the most remarkable question I've ever been asked in my life. Are you fully you? And so I can ask each one of you that. Are you fully you? Are you fully Matthew? Are you fully Rob? Are you fully Crystal? Are you fully Mama G? Are you fully you, Noel? Are you fully you? Or is there still that mask that's hiding you even from the Lord and that mass that's keeping you in a place that you're not really allowing yourself to fully be expressed. Because Christ in you, the hope of glory, is it depends on you letting it go and surrendering all. Amen? All right, let me wrap this up. Um, in these dark night situations, the issue is whether we will respond with an unoffended heart and lovesick heart. And that's really the place where we are, where we get tested. Because if we can keep our hearts alive in love, and it's interesting because there's a little bit of a, uh, a tension going on here. You know, we're supposed to guard our heart with all our strength because out of it the issues of life flow. But at the same time, we're supposed to completely surrender our hearts. And so they're fully bare, right? And I want to tell you that... Um, when you respond with an unoffended heart, what happens is that 
there's so much authority that comes on you because you've overcome betrayal. You've overcome the dark night of the soul. Therefore, you rise up in authority. And remember, and what happens to this Shulamite is that the women, that the, the all of the watchmen who were ripping her veil, actually now were going to her and asking her for wisdom because they saw how she responded to that kind of betrayal. And they were like, how can it be that you are still so in love with a man like Jesus when all of this bad stuff just happened? happened to you? Why do you still love him? And she's like, do you know where my beloved is? Do you know where I'm pursuing him? Even though I'm brokenhearted, even though it's not fair, even though I've been betrayed, I still love him. I have chosen him. And so they, they are just blown away by the testimony of her life and, and her love. And I'm telling you that if you will, if you will uh, go through your dark night of the soul in the same way, even though you don't understand, just say, I'm not giving up. I'm going all the way with Jesus. And so you keep worshiping through that place. You keep loving through that place. You keep choosing love every day. I'm not going to be offended at Jesus. I'm not going to be offended at the person that hurt me. And, um, and so I want to, I, before I, we stand and I pray, um, one of the things that really helped me in dealing with incredible betrayal um, and heartache um, is this book by John Bevere. It basically saved my life. And um, so I really encourage you, if you're really struggling in your heart, um, one, of the, one of my life philosophies is this. I am not going to give to heaven, get to heaven and stand before the Lord. And say, oh, here's a shattered heart. Here's uh, 89% of my heart. The rest of it got offended and it atrophied. But I'm supposed to love God with my whole heart. I'm supposed to love you with my whole heart. And if I let the enemy take part of my heart, then I can't do that. I'll see through a lens that is discolored. And everything will go through that lens and I will, I will be suspicious of people and their motives. But I don't want to do that. I want to live clean. And so I just encourage you in that. Fight for love. Fight to keep your hearts alive in love. No matter what the world throws at you, you can do this because of Jesus. So let's pray. Go ahead and stand. I know it was long. I apologize. But Rob said it was okay. All right, so Jesus, we love you. Just say that. Jesus, I love you. Yeah, I love you on the mountain, and I love you in the valley. Yeah, no matter what, I'm, I'm in this all the way until I meet you in the sky. So I'm going to pray over you. Well, Father, I thank you for this message in Song of Solomon. I thank you that it's the song of all songs, that there'll never be another song as great as this song because it's our song. It's my song. It's their song. It's our song. Our song with you. And so we bl I just bless you. I bless you in your heart, in the places and the seasons that you've been in where you feel like your bones have just become brittle. I just bless you now with an anointing to come over your bones. And I prophesy to your bones that look dead. And I say you will rise up and become a great and powerful and mighty army. What the enemy meant for evil, God is going to turn it for good. Watch and watch him move. Watch and watch again. You will not be left in the ashes, but your ashes are going to build a beautiful garden. In Jesus' name, receive it. Believe it. Amen. Thank you.